Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Are we uh, coming through? Yeah. Welcome, everyone. I'm Trevor Page, and I'll be moderating today's session. We're going to try something different at SAGPA today. You're still going to have to put your $10 in the basket on the table, but we're not going to give you any lunch. <laughs> I'm just kidding. No. <laughs> what we're going to do is we're going to show you a film. It's the first time SAGPA's done this. Um, it's a new film made by Jim Byrne called Choking Lake Winnipeg. And it shows you how we're choking our lakes and waterways all over the world, including right here in Lethbridge. In addition to being a professor and chair of geography at the UofL, Jim is an accomplished filmmaker. Some of you will have seen the 2002 award-winning television series Global Change, which he co-produced, and the 2004 TV series Water Under Fire. Jim is with us today, and he'll be at the podium to answer your questions after you've seen his film and after we've had lunch. So let's, uh, let's roll. <laughs> Traditionally, sewage treatment plants have uh, have been costing more. For the longest time, those of us who lived on the lake or had some something to do with the lake in terms of activity, 
uh, didn't really notice much of a change and took it for granted that there wasn't any problem in Lake Winnipeg for, for many years. Uh, this issue was raised uh, probably about 15 years ago by commercial fishers who worked on the lake and by Aboriginals who lived around the north end of the lake in particular, that they were seeing the development of large algae blooms, the extent of which they'd never seen before. Uh, as a group of researchers, we said, well, there may be some substance to this, but let's see if we can gather evidence of same. And what we found was clear evidence, and these people had seen, and we found evidence of massive blooms of, of algae on the north basin of Lake Winnipeg in particular. When you have rotting masses of algae on the beach, when you can't go swimming because of concerns about algal toxins that cause skin irritation, or worse, if ingested. We used to drink the water just with our cup, you know, when we were fishing. We never thought nothing of it. And uh, today, I, I don't think that we want to. The algae bloom is very thick. It's changing the quality of the water. Spanning almost one million square kilometers and home to nearly five million people, the Lake Winnipeg watershed is the second largest watershed in Canada. From Alberta to Ontario to the Dakotas, its massive network of waterways supplies water to rural and urban populations across four provinces and four states. But there is a problem lurking in these waterways. Cyanobacteria or blue-green algae are photosynthetic microbes naturally present in all watercourses. Algae play a vital role as primary producers in the aquatic food web. However, in the presence of excessive nutrients, algae overwhelm the ecosystem and cause hypereutrophication. The bacteria rapidly grow from single cells into filaments, multiply into colonies, and finally explode into a massive algal bloom. These blooms are toxic to both humans and animals. When the algae die and decompose, they rob the aquatic environment of oxygen. The cause of hypereutrophia is excess nutrients running rampant throughout the watershed. This overabundance is human-induced. We are choking our water. Typically in rivers, as uh, watershed increases in size, that is, you go further and further down a river network, the concentration of nutrients tends to go up. Loading rates from the watershed, when we start uh, clearing landscapes and making them into agricultural landscapes, often double. And so that pushes the nutrient loadings way beyond the normal range that are found in the ecosystem as you go from upstream to downstream. Also, the uh, 
forests are slowly being cleared from the basin farther and farther to the north. And as a rule of thumb, there's been a succession of studies in different areas of the uh, Canada and the northern U.S. that indicate that just simply clearing the trees and replacing them even with hay fields uh, pretty well doubles the nutrient output. On top of that, Lake Winnipeg has been transformed into a hydroelectric reservoir, which increases uh, the time that water and nutrients are retained in the basin. So it's quite a, a combination of factors, but uh, really the, the simple one to control is the nutrient inputs. Since most people have lived for a long time in connection with rivers and have used them as, as transportation corridors, our civilization is built up around rivers, and they bear the mark of that. They're all in rivers. Agriculture is a major, possibly the major source of nutrients to our waterways. Fertilizer running off of large agricultural fields, off of irrigated and dry land, contributes a tremendous amount to the problem. Um, animal waste. We have huge animal husbandry operations in Western Canada, and certainly those, you know, all of that animal waste is adding to our nutrient problem in our waterways. But it's not just agriculture. Cities and towns contribute substantially. Our sewage loading coming out of our sanity sewers going into our water systems and a major part of the overload on our waterways. Cities also contribute substantial amounts of nutrients off of our lawns and gardens from urban runoff from, from our storm sewers. So cities have to consider that. And of course, we overwater our lawns and gardens and so we, we enhance the problem there. Western Canadians have eliminated most of the wetlands on the southern prairies. Um, wetlands are the kidneys of the planet. The, they, they cleanse water, they remove nutrients from water. So the fact that we've taken away all the wetlands, it means that you know, the enhanced nutrient loadings from agriculture and from our cities and from other sources aren't being absorbed by wetlands. Agriculture contributes to our economy and lifestyle, to our very identity. But agriculture is also one of the greatest sources of nutrient loading in the watershed. The practice of raising large populations of animals in confined spaces poses a real problem in terms of animal waste. This problem is not only the feedlots in southern Alberta. Chicken, pork, and beef operations exist throughout the watershed. And each year these animals produce millions of tons of manure. This waste leaches into our waterways, eutrophying rivers and lakes to extents never seen before. ideas and technologies are emerging in livestock waste management. If manure is sort of in oversupply, it tends to get um, overapplied to land, and with the result that uh, the soils can get uh, loaded up with nutrients, particularly nitrogen and phosphorus. And when you have high levels of nitrogen and phosphorus in soils, that leads to environmental problems like nitrate leaching to groundwater or phosphorus running, running off to surface waters. So um, 
It's basically uh, an oversupply issue and an over-application over issue with manure. There's several uh, advantages to composting. Uh, first and foremost, uh, composting reduces the volume and mass of material and also its water content. Raw manure, um, by its very nature, it's uneconomical to transport. Uh, some springs, 70% of the weight of raw manure can be water. By composting, uh, you can reduce the mass of the material. Uh, you can reduce its water content from 70% down to 30%. So if you're looking at transporting nutrients, which is what really, we really want to achieve here, it's moving nutrients further away from a feedlot source uh, to land that can benefit from those nutrients. The composting option allows you to transport those nutrients longer distances than if you were trying to do it with uh, raw manure. Transporting manure further from source will lower nutrient leaching. But cattle trampling streambeds and banks and leaving waste will further deteriorate aquatic ecosystems. In the last uh, 10 years, people have been figuring out everybody is a downstream water drinker. It's better not to winter in the creek bottoms to allow this vegetation to reestablish. And so they uh, embarked on this journey to try and do what they could to understand more about their water. And base the basic thing starting with that is looking at stocking rates, distribution, timing, and providing adequate rest, the four principles of range management. So using those principles and what we understand about ecology, we're helped to guide some of the management practices on these lands. 85% of our natural grasslands are, are, have been altered, mostly by agriculture, and all by well-meaning people. Like they're not blaming anybody. I just People did the best they could with the knowledge they had at the time to survive. We're still learning. We've probably made every sin in the book, and then some. But now we're trying to hopefully leave the place better than it was when we found it for the next people. Some of the things we've done is off-stream watering, uh, fencing of some of the water streams, uh, even 25 and 30 years ago. What we've done uh, with uh, many of our springs is uh, put a little trap uh, to catch the water, divert it into a pipe, into a water watering trough away from the stream, and then put the overflow back into the stream. This way the livestock stay out of the water course, uh, they have cleaner water, and it leaves cleaner water downstream is our theory. We do believe it's a big advantage to, the, to us and to the water in the creek. We hope to do more of that. We hope to reestablish some of the woody uh, species along these streams. Uh, before we came, it, uh, the old timers told us it was uh, one of the better trout streams. And if we can even glimpse that uh, in the next 10 to 20 years, that would be wonderful. To compete in a global economy, traditional agriculture uses large quantities of farm chemicals. These substances enter our water through runoff and improper disposal. Improving the utility of these products will better support agriculture and a healthy aquatic ecosystem. We must keep farm chemicals on the farm. Protecting and establishing natural ground cover is the best solution to keeping nutrients working on the land. Any practice that changes ground cover causes runoff and consequently increases nutrients in our water systems. 
good way to maintain low levels of agricultural runoff is to minimize the amount of annual soil processing. One of the prime fundamental advantages we found about zero till, as soon as, as, soon as you quit tilling, and we, we haven't tilled for almost 27 years now, and from our observation, the land has become more and more productive. Uh, but one of the main things is we do not get any runoff. We have 4,000 acres. There's no runoff. And yet, down near at the corner, two miles, four miles north, there was a terrible amount of runoff the spring before last. And that's the difference between tilled land and zero-till land. All your root channels have remained intact. And they just suck the water into the subsoil. So we don't have ponds anymore. I grew up with sloughs all over the farm. You're shooting ducks in the fall. None of that anymore. There are no sloughs. <laughs> and so you're retaining all the water that nature sends you. And if you retain it in the soil, <clears throat> I don't know how it would get into the rivers. If the nutrients are not being lost off the soils, then they're available for crop growth. So this is a good thing. With population growth in the future, rising commodities prices, people are going to want to fertilize less, get more yield, and do better that way. You're also going to have to get urban buy-in, though, too. And it, it's in many environmental issues, it's not a question of what the quickest fix is. It's who's going to blink first which group is going to come forward and say, I'm going to take the leadership, we're going to go forward, and then you're all going to follow. Most societies, most activities for humans have innovators and then a relatively conservative major population. You need to get buy-in from the innovators, and that's the start. So that'll be farmers who are really serious about reducing erosion, who want to restore wetlands, um, but it'll also be urban inputs where the technological fix is fairly straightforward. One pipe, we know how to take the nutrients out, we just need to go ahead and do it. Once you get that buy-in, it's easier to go back to other people where the problem is more expensive per capita or the problem is just more difficult uh, from an engineering perspective. And I think you can get better buy-in that way. I think in Lake Winnipeg, um, there's a fairly quick fix for taking some of the nutrients out by upgrading the wastewater plants from really 1950s technology, it's, it's, it's not good technology, towards what will be acceptable in the future. And in doing so, there's some debate about whether to take out one nutrient, many nutrients, and what the possible effects might be on the lake. At the end of the day, the solution is actually quite clear. If you want the conditions that were naturally in the lake, you have to take out everything. Large-scale nutrient removal may seem like a daunting task, but the technology is sound and effective examples can be found throughout the watershed. The, what's called the, the biological nutrient removal system, which is a sort of a microbial or bacterial-based system, is much more effective than chemical treatment to remove phosphorus, and it gets rid of the nitrogen at the same time. So I think some of the cost arguments in Winnipeg are a bit confusing. If people really want to get rid of phosphorus and they decide that's the thing they want to do, then they should use biological nutrient removal, which will get rid of nitrogen at the same time. I mean, 
I think the whole biological nutrient removal technology has been engineering driven. It's a good way to reduce nitrate toxicity, nitrite toxicity, ammonia toxicity to fish, gets rid of nitrogen in one fell swoop. Now, whether society is willing to do that or not, separate issue. The treatment of waste is important in decreasing the human impact on our water supply. Canadian innovators are taking sewage nutrient removal one step further by creating technologies to manufacture viable products from human waste. Traditionally, sewage treatment plants have, uh, have been costing more and more to run as they get more sophisticated and try, try to remove constituents from, from wastewater. Uh, this is really the next step in the evolution where wastewater treatment plants are starting to look at, at the, the resources that are actually in the wastewater and ways of recovering it. Under controlled conditions, we've, we found a way where we could uh, recover a valuable fertilizer product from, from wastewater. We, we add magnesium to the wastewater, uh, which is the, the missing ingredient uh, to, to, to make this crystallization process happen. And the crystals grow over the, a period of about two weeks uh, into fertilizer pearls that are the, the same size as, as the industry standard. And essentially we then dry it, har uh, harvest it from the reactor, dry it, uh, put it in a bag and sell it. We're doing two things. We're offsetting a, a piece of wastewater treatment that would otherwise be happening anyways, and we're also offsetting a, uh, some fertilizer production. So by combining those two pieces, we can actually generate up to about seven tons of CO2 credit per ton of fertilizer we produce. Um, so not only are we generating revenue for the city, we're also reducing the greenhouse gas footprint for, for a municipal operation. It is time to start looking at our sewage as a resource instead of just waste. Nutrient loading of our water is not confined to human sewage. Urban runoff contributes large quantities of pollutants down storm drains. Well, in the past, we have been draining all the runoff directly into lakes and streams because we want to get rid of the water. Nobody likes to drive in uh, a foot of runoff water. But we are now realizing that non-point source pollution horrendous. There's lots of nutrients in it, there's a lot of metal in it, hydrocarbons and so on. So we're now becoming alert to the fact that we shouldn't directly drain this into the receiving water, but we should maybe put it into some wetlands and detention ponds so that the sediments can settle and the nutrients are taken up by plants, pathogens are being removed with the organisms and the water filters through the system and then is released into the aquatic environment. Wetlands are the best filtering systems. They're much better than artificial filters and you can sustain this kind of purification for 15-20 years and then you have to do something with the sediment. Large-scale social change is a complex process. Yet, by making small changes to your lifestyle, you can improve watershed health. As a start, research what is appropriate to put down the drain. Reevaluating the detergents and chemicals used in your home will ensure that the health of both your family and the environment can be sustained. When landscaping your property, minimize water use by xeriscaping and using other sod-free alternatives. But don't stop there. You can affect change in your community by investigating available technology and consulting local experts. The most important thing is to get the word out about the hazards to our water. 
Change requires patience and due diligence. Without these, we risk far greater dangers. Hypereutrification is not limited to fresh water. Every year, large-scale algal blooms are observed in oceans around the globe. Spanning hundreds of thousands of square kilometers, these blooms deplete oxygen necessary for marine life. Few organisms survive. Loading our lakes and streams with nutrients creates dead zones in coastal waters. We can protect and preserve our oceans by protecting and preserving our fresh water. None of us wants dead waterways, dead oceans. So we all have to look at how we can be part of this problem that's caused by many sectors of society. If you live in the city, you've got to minimize your use of lawn and garden chemicals. Uh, consider what else you can do with your yard rather than having those extensive lawns that take so much uh, attention. Minimize water use on your house and yard. Don't flush chemicals and drugs down your toilets. Just flush what's supposed to go down there. That's what the sewage treatment plant can handle. Agriculture's a tougher one. Agriculture is a highly competitive industry globally. So we have to reduce nutrient loading from agriculture, but we need to produce food. So it's going to be an interactive process. Society, governments, even individuals, we're going to have to work with agriculture through better regulation and perhaps providing assistance to producers to deal with the nutrient issues. Maybe we should help producers look as nutrients at nutrients as a resource rather than a problem. Well, the, the, the important point about Lake Winnipeg is that Lake Winnipeg is sort of a hub of a whole uh, bunch of agricultural landscapes and cities. And that, rip, and that lake is receiving a uh, load of nutrients that far exceed what, it can, what a shallow lake like that should be, would be able to handle normally. And, and the fisheries of the lake are being imperiled, and it's not going to cost that much to clean it up. We should, as a society, be improving conditions without necessarily regard to the immediate costs, rather to the greater societal good. People are complaining about the, the state of Lake Winnipeg. It will get worse in the future if we don't fix this. And then we can look back in time and go, well, why didn't they do it then? At some point, we, we really need to just stop complaining about the costs and go ahead and fix it because the, the benefits to society in the long run are far, far more powerful than the immediate economic issues. to do anyway because in the end the carrying capacity of this planet will be determined by the amount of clean water that it has.